met Jonathan Siegel just after high school, and we have been close friends ever since. Jonathan has always had a keen interest in nature, plant ecology, and evolution. His interest in nature led him to spend a summer at the Witz Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts, and another at the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire, doing research. Later, Jonathan became especially interested in tropical forests, coral reefs, and traditional and Aboriginal cultures, which led him to travel to some of the more remote parts of the world. Places like Costa Rica, the Peruvian Amazon, islands of the Pacific, the Red Sea, Nepal, Bhutan, and more recently, Papua New Guinea. I have always been a bit jealous of his travels and have often talked with him about what takes him to these places. When I started Nature Revisited, I asked Jonathan if he would do an episode with me for the podcast. So this fall, while visiting, we sat down and talked about his journey to there. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. I'm going to start with your recollections in Switzerland of your first reading of Moby Dick. Well, I was living with my family in Switzerland at the time. I was about 15 years old, and I had a great teacher who we read Moby Dick in class, and it was not a very expected book to be read in class because it's considered kind of an intimidating classic. But I found to my surprise that I absolutely loved it. And part of the reason is that she showed us how the book was written and how the author created the drama and the tragedy and the mm, majesty, really, of that book. And that really captured my imagination in a way that very few other books ever had before. And I still remember on the back cover of the little paperback book that we read, and I still have that copy, there was a quote from the poet John Macefield, and he said, Moby Dick brought all the joy, the sadness, and the magic of many waters into my life. And that is really what it did for me. It, it took me on a journey into the heart of the ocean, but also into the heart of man. And the grandeur, the tragedy, and the exoticism of a whaling voyage, but also a voyage deep into the deepest heart of, of man among the various characters. And, and so that book had a, had a weight and a, uh, and a drama more than any book I'd ever read before. And when people ask what my favorite book is, I, I still say Moby Dick is really my favorite book of all time. So what other books did you read as a youth 
that help to excite your your imagination for exotic places? Probably Robinson Crusoe was the first book that I can remember that did that, because of course it is a very exotic tale about being a, a shipwrecked on a on a tropical island with the palm trees and the beach and the, only the ocean to sustain you, and so that of course is a very exotic and remote kind of tale that makes you wonder about that aspect of the world, which is of course so far from your own, my own experience as a, as a child. Another book that really sparked a kind of lifelong interest, especially in the Himalayas, is a book called The Snow Leopard by the author Peter Matheson. And that is also, just like Moby Dick, it is a physical journey because it describes an expedition that he and another man uh, took into Nepal to search for the actual snow leopard. But it's also a spiritual journey because it describes his involvement in Buddhism. And the two merge as they trek through the Himalayas in the, in the Buddhist part of Nepal and travel past monasteries and little villages. And so even though they never see a snow leopard during the entire expedition or, or in the book, Nevertheless, the journey it becomes the actual point of it rather than the goal of seeing a snow leopard, which they never actually achieve. So that book was another one that, that entranced me and created a kind of lifelong fascination with the Himalayas where I've now been three times. So when did you first get this sense that you wanted to visit some of these remote places? I think probably Moby Dick is the book that that first put that idea into my mind. Not that I would, of course, be literally following in those footsteps, because, of course, that's a, a, a tale about a whaling voyage. But the idea that there that there is this mysterious and deep quality to the ocean... I think was sparked by that book. I mean, having grown up in a in a small town in the countryside, I had hiked in the mountains many times. But the I think the interest in these remote and more exotic places really came originally from the books that I read, and somehow those images and and that yearning seeped into my mind and when I started being able to have the chance to do that when I was a little bit older, that is when those ideas started coming to fruition. Did the idea of nature play a role in your intrigue and desire? In other words, do you feel that growing up you had a strong connection with nature? I did in the sense that Again, because growing up in a in a relatively rural area surrounded by mountains and a river, that that I like the outdoors, but I think the next level of it really did come later, rather than just the enjoyment of hiking or camping and things like that. Kind of the the, the idea of of there being another level to it, and maybe having some kind of greater 
meaning or greater connection to the outside world really didn't come till later. And I think in many cases, it's a link between the natural environment of a particular place that I yearn to see and also the, the way of life of the people. Because men, when you go to remote places, you also go to remote societies and you often see people living much closer to nature than the way that we do in the West. You're talking about possibly even Aboriginal societies like in New Guinea, for example, or people living in a very uh, traditional or archaic way like in little villages up in Nepal. There's often a link between the natural environment and also the traditional culture of the people living there because they're so closely entwined with that with the nature the natural environment there that you can't really easily separate them and the fascination with these other cultures and the way they live in concordance with nature is part of the the lure for me it's not just the natural world most of the time there's also a link with the traditional cultures of the people that live there. Let's talk about some of the places that you have been and what are some of the more memorable places? Well, certainly one of the most memorable is New Guinea. New Guinea, of course, is a very large island just north of Australia, very remote, lightly populated, and very, very undeveloped by Western standards. What originally took me there is the nature, the coral reefs and the islands off the coast of New Guinea. But I also traveled up into the highlands, which are a high plateau about six or 7,000 feet high in the middle of the island, such that even though it's right on the equator at six or 7,000 feet, it's actually moderately cool and it's away from all the tropical diseases. And it's incredibly mountainous, incredibly remote, very difficult to get to. And the people there, in many ways, still live a very traditional, almost aboriginal life in small villages with no electricity, with shelters and, ho and houses that they build themselves from natural materials all around them, usually using just machetes. And they have a very traditional way of life where there is subsistence agriculture. They use the products around them to adorn themselves for their own rituals and ceremonies in incredible ways. I mean, you can find somebody there with a bird of paradise feather that's two or three feet long through their nose, fur woven into their hair, armbands made of flowers, bird pelts and boar tusk necklaces strung around their neck all have ritual significance. The other thing about cultures like that is they often are very animistic in that their gods are forces of nature. So they might have a river god, a, a crocodile god, a, a wind god, a rain god, rather than a kind of personified god like in the religions of the West. Also because they live very, very close to nature. It's mostly subsistence agriculture. So for them, the natural world is everything that supports them, that they rely on, and that they live very, very close to. They live at a material level that's much lower, but much more intimate with nature. 
The other thing is they're much more intimate with each other because they live in a kind of format the way humanity developed. Families, but in a small compound where everybody lives very close together. And in some of the languages there, they don't even have a word for the concept of alone because they're never alone their whole life. They're always with each other in some way or other. And that's such a different way of life than we have in the West. And that too is part of the fascination, wondering, have they preserved something that we've lost, that sense of communal togetherness with other people that were all dependent on each other, that were truly all in it together? Having lost that, maybe that gives rise to a lot of the social problems that we have in the West that they don't have. Every way of life has its pluses and minuses. They just have a different set than we do. What are some of the other places? I know you've been to Bhutan. Yes, I've made trips to the Himalayas, and one of them is to the small Buddhist kingdom of Bhutan, which is situated between India and China, right next to Nepal. Bhutan is an interesting because until very recently it was thought of as, quote, the closed kingdom, end of quotations, because up until about 20 years ago, it was largely closed to the outside world. For example, they had no television until just before the turn of the century, just before the year 2000. They had no internet until probably 10 years ago. And it is a kind of traditional Buddhist kingdom, where again, most of the people live in very small villages, very close together, subsistence agriculture. And for them, Buddhism is an everyday part of their life, probably in a way that maybe religion was in the Middle Ages in Europe, where religion dominated life in many ways every day. And the traditional Buddhism in Bhutan is the same way. The rituals, the prayers, the observances, the monasteries, the little sh the shrines that people have in their house, that's all part of everyday life. And so that also is part of the part of the fascination to to witness that. What, they have festivals, religious festivals, one of which I attended in a large monastery way up in the mountains and hundreds of people come from all over dressed in their finest clothes to witness these they're called the sacred setu dances in which the dancers dress up like uh, as characters from the the buddhist scriptures and in dance they act out some of the famous episodes of the the evolution of buddhism for example one of their dances is about how Buddhism came to Bhutan from Tibet because a famous monk flew over the Himalayas from Tibet on the back of a flying tiger and founded a monastery, which you can still visit today, and brought Buddhism, part of which was the idea of not killing animals. And so in the dance, you see the dancers acting out the parts of a stag or a or kind of uh, elk-like um, animal that lives there, and the hunters, and then the Buddhist monks trying to show the hunters that it's wrong to kill animals. And I was there in this 
outdoor setting with these exotic dancers twirling and dancing and, and leaping. And just to look around and see and be there witnessing this ancient ritual just was a very transporting experience, almost surreal, hard to believe that here you are really witnessing this thing, which had probably been done exactly the same 500 years ago, and or maybe even a thousand years ago, here you are witnessing it. And that's the kind of experience that draws me to those places. There was another one that you described yesterday, another moment oh, yes. of intimacy with nature. That yes. If you can describe the way you did the shooting stars. About 10 years ago, I was hiking in the Himalayas of Nepal to the base camp of a famous mountain called Annapurna. And a book called Annapurna was also one of the very early books that I read when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old that captured my imagination because it was about the, the first successful climb of the mountain called Annapurna, which at the time was the highest mountain that had ever been climbed. This was before Mount Everest. It was very difficult. It was very remote. It, they had to trek weeks just to get to a place where they could set up camp. That book was one of the other things that sparked my interest in the Himalayas. So more than 40 years after I read that book, I myself was on the trail to Annapurna, not to the top, that's beyond me, but to the base camp, which is at 14,500 feet roughly. We stayed overnight and then we got up the next morning to see the sunrise over the snow cover and ice covered uh, massif of Annapurna. So we got up at five in the morning. It was absolutely pitch black. You've never in your life seen the sky as pitch black as that was. It was the deepest, inkiest black you can imagine. And in the sky were the stars that were glinting and shining more brightly than you've ever seen, but with a special quality. They were so bright, it was almost like, like knives coming into your eyes. They shone with a, with a kind of blue coldness that, you've, that I'd never experienced before, like starlight at its purest form, very steely. That was the quality it had. It had a kind of steely, cold quality that I've never seen in the stars before. And once again, being in this incredible atmosphere of surrounded by these massive peaks in the blackness of the sky and the, the glinting of the stars, see if I could feel myself or, or see something. I, I think of it as seeing into the heart of nature. There's a phrase which is the title of another book that I've read. The phrase is, in the heart of the heart of the country. And that's what I was trying to find. I was trying to see if I could feel or see into the heart of the heart of the country as I stood out there. And what actually happened was that I didn't really see into the heart of anything. What I realized was that maybe there isn't really a heart of the heart of the country, except what's within you. And as I stood there feeling the cold and the wind, I felt a kind of, 
I felt the indifference of nature, actually. You could die out there, and nature is indifferent to that. Of course, it was very cold. It was nighttime, so it's pitch black in the middle of nowhere with no lights anywhere. And I could feel the wind. I wondered, am I going to see through to the heart of something? Am I going to see into the heart of the natural world in some way? I came away with that feeling, yes, I am here, but the stars and the universe is indifferent to my fate. I am just here, I'm part of it, but the universe continues and goes on with a kind of indifference and a kind of distance that puts us in our place in a sense. Uh, not in a negative way, but simply in a neutral way. And I, I came away again with that very strong feeling of what I, what I keep calling the indifference of the universe to us. And that was a very powerful experience. After the sunrise came, I went back to where we were staying and wrote down my sensations at the time because they made such a strong impression on me. I still have that journal in a drawer somewhere. You experienced that. You came directly, I mean, you can't get much closer to nature than that. And you experienced it. You are in some ways showing us that we are nature. True, true. I will say that going to those exotic places does show you very interesting aspects of nature. For example, if you go to some place like Papua New Guinea, if you're lucky enough, you may see something incredible like the birds of paradise, which are very hard to see. I've only caught a glimpse of them all. I've heard them a few times. Or you may see orchids growing in the forest as you walk by. If you're hiking through the Himalayas, you see rhododendron forests, huge rhododendrons, not like the, the garden plants we have here, but huge ones, 30 or 40 feet high. If you're interested in plants and, and trees, you in these places, especially the tropical ones, you do see incredible, incredible beauties, kind of more traditional wonders of nature. And if you have a scientific and a botanical background, which I do, you can appreciate all that beauty and the, the different species and the way that different species interact with each other. For example, to see leaf cutter ants on a path uh, across a jungle path, like in Peru, or to see a rare bird, in Costa Rica, I was lucky enough to see Quetzals, the sacred birds of the Inca, up in the cloud forest in a place called Monteverde. So yes, you, you get those kind of special experiences with nature. I don't know. I, I think, for me, I think those times when I've tried deliberately to see into the heart of things, to see what's there... Those feel different than what I think of as a more traditional appreciation of the beauties of nature, the way that the way that you just feel when you see a, a gorgeous landscape, or scuba diving when you see incredible tropical fish and multiple species of coral. Those are very special. For me, they're different, where I consciously try to sort of penetrate the veil and and see beyond and see into the heart of things. They're both very memorable, but they're different. Do you think one has affected the other? You obviously have not rejected nature. You're very 
you're very close to it. It's very important to you. Yes, certainly, certainly. In fact, I think I think of nature and my experience of the of the the natural world as a kind of saving grace that that makes the rest of life possible in a way. Yes, you can rely on the natural world for something that you don't get from the world of man. And when the world of man seems discouraging, nature is what, for me personally, allows me to, to go on and to think that there is, there is still hope in life. The natural world is, is, in a sense, is like our salvation. So do you think that it's important that, that these indigenous cultures continue to exist? Definitely. First of all, because they're human beings and that's their life and that's the way they have, have, have always lived traditionally. So I hope they'll be allowed to persist, but it is very difficult. And I think for those of us who are not part of a culture like that, we do have to, it's a very fine line that you tread between being fascinated by them and, and wanting to experience them and perhaps learn from them and wanting to preserve them in, in some sort of museum as if they'd be frozen in amber and not allowed to, to change or evolve as they want to. The truth is that when traditional cultures encounter a culture from the outside, usually very terrible things happen. At the same time, there are some things that we have that they often want. For example, in the villages of Bhutan that I visited, most of which don't have electricity, the people want electricity. They want to have lights at night. They want their children to get education. Some of the traditional peoples, for example, in the Amazon or in Papua New Guinea, they depend a lot on digging and, and cutting down trees. Well, it's a lot harder to cut down a tree with a stone axe than with a steel axe. So they often want implements like machetes or steel axes because that makes even their traditional way of life so much easier. So it's a very fine line, as I say, between wanting to see those societies allowed to persist while at the same time not imprisoning them in some frozen image in time because we want it to be that way. Traditional cultures have, have and will continue to have a very hard time encountering the outside world in any way without losing their, their own traditional way of life. There are some tribes, for example, in the Amazon that have made it clear that they don't want contact. And then at other times, sometimes they come out of the forest and they do want contact, for example, when someone's been injured. I have to say, I think some of my interest, in the, again, in the traditional cultures is also maybe related to that and out of a sense of wondering if our modern way of life has, lo has lost touch with the way that human beings evolved. Because again, traditional societies, those few that still remain, really live much closer to the way that human beings did evolve in nature before technology, before cultural evolution. When you go to a place like New Guinea, sometimes you, you feel that you're looking back 
into the dawn of humanity. You're looking back into a world that was the world of human beings as they originally evolved. And that in modern Western society, we have transitioned away from that to such a great degree that we've forgotten how human beings really did evolve for 99.9% of humanity's history, people were living more like these traditional societies do. We are just a tiny, we're like a second in the, in the timeline of human history. So finally, recently you have talked about an interest you have had in using ayahuasca, a drug used by shamans of the South American Amazon. I am wondering if your curiosity of that drug has a connection to your experiences, such as the one that you talk about in the Himalayas, where you describe the strong indifference from nature. I'm wondering if maybe you haven't given up on looking into the heart of the heart of nature, and that an experience with ayahuasca might take you there. I think there's definitely an element of that. For example, ayahuasca, which is um, so-called the so-called vine of the dead from South America, used by many uh, uh, indigenous tribes there, typically by the shamans of the tribe who make a, a brew from the, from the vine, the ayahuasca vine, and then in their mind, they, they travel to the spirit world under the influence of that drug and find something, some piece of wisdom that they then bring back and impart to the other members of the community that have, in a sense, consulted them. So the way it's used in a traditional society is, is, is not that most people in the community will will take that kind of journey or use the drug. It's usually traditionally reserved for the shamans who are the community representative, in a sense, to the spirit world. And the way they travel to the spirit world and bring back wisdom or knowledge, which their own community members can then use, for example, to cure an illness. And definitely, I think, for me, the idea of experiencing that kind of drug is connected to that kind of journey, like the kind of journey that the, that the shamans take, a journey to, they call it the spirit world, but a journey to some other aspect of nature or the world, the journey to there, to see into the heart of things in a way that I don't see in normal day-to-day -day life. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Nature Revisited and my conversation with Jonathan Siegel. The world has so many fascinating cultures and societies. Let's hope we can all learn to live together. The music for this episode was a recording of traditional music from Papua New Guinea. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with your friends, family, and colleagues. 
Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. <laughs>